Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve. And I'm Paula. Uh, we wanted to just thank all of our Patreon supporters again. Because we've had more and more support, we have released a Patreon-only podcast called Unprepared. First episode is up and will be followed soon by more. Head on over to ohiomysteries.com and select our Patreon link to learn more on how to become a supporter. And I hope you start and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Escape, a song by a Chardon indie rock artist, Unfair. Unfair is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'd love to tell you a little bit more about her, and we'll play the whole song for you at the end of the podcast. But right now, toss some more wood on that fire, campers. We've got a brand new Ohio mystery to explore. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who spent an award-winning 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, did you ever watch Court TV back in the day? Oh, yeah. They aired the O.J. Simpson trial, the Menendez brothers trial. Whatever happened to it, by the way? Well, Court TV went away for about a decade or so, but they relaunched just last month. And I bring it up because there was a very sensational trial in Ohio that got gavel-to-gavel national coverage on Court TV back in 1993. And it's the subject of today's episode, The Murder of Lisa Pruitt. Uh, Not to be a spoiler here, but we only do mysteries. Does that mean that the trial didn't end the way the prosecutors wanted it to? I think it's fair to say this case is still a mystery. So let me start at the beginning. In 1990, Lisa Pruitt was a junior at Shaker Heights High School. The 16-year-old was bright, had a quick wit, and was active in everything from marching band and field hockey to student council in the school newspaper. She loved to write poetry, and she also kept a scrapbook she called her happy book, filled with newspaper headlines and stories that made her smile. Lisa also had a boyfriend. His name was Dan Dryford. And Dan lived in a large house, some might call it a mansion, on Lee Road. He had a bit of a bad boy reputation. Dan had his own band called Your Mother and Her Howling Commandos. Oh, okay. Once after getting trouble in school, he and his friends started wearing a single black glove and calling themselves the Black Glove Cult. Dan also liked to get high on cough syrup. <laughs> 
He hosted robo-parties at his house. That's where everyone drank Robitussin while listening to music. I have never heard of this. This is kind of odd. It's a 1990s thing. You were too young. Yeah, I was just getting into high school, so... Well, Dan and Lisa, they became a couple in April of 1990 during a high school band trip to Germany. But that summer, Dan hit a rough patch. In August, he was admitted to the psych ward of the Cleveland Clinic and put on medication for having suicidal thoughts. Later that month, he was granted a short leave from the clinic and promptly overdosed on antihistamines. Still, on September 13, after 35 days in the hospital, he was discharged. His dad picked him up and took him home. At 3 p.m., he hopped on his bike and rode to the high school to surprise Lisa. It was a big day for her. She was going to get her driver's license. Lisa had been hoping Dan would be with her to celebrate, and he didn't disappoint. Dan was back home in time for dinner, and a little after 9 p.m., Lisa went to his house. Her dad was driving, and he waited in the car while Dan and Lisa slipped around the corner of the house for a little kissing and chatting. Dan had asked a couple of friends to come over that night for a little robo-party. Lisa said she'd sneak out of the house and come join them. She lived a mile and a half away. It would be an easy trip on her bike. Then Lisa returned home with her father. At 11.30 p.m., Dan went to his room to listen to some music and tidy things up. At midnight, his sister Deb called in to report on her first week at the Ohio University campus. After his parents talked to her, Dan took the phone and chatted with his sister. At about 12.15, he ended the call and returned to his bedroom alone. Fifteen minutes later, the sound of screams reached the occupants of the Dryford home. They were coming from outside. Dan ran to his bedroom window and looked out. In a moment, his dad was by his side. Dan turned and ran out of the house. He was the first to make it to the front lawn. He looked up and down the street. His father quickly dressed and joined him, but they didn't see anything out of the ordinary. They shrugged and returned to the house. So they heard some screams, ran out, nobody there. Couldn't find anyone. They shrugged and returned to the house, and Dan's father went to sleep while Dan continued cleaning his bedroom. Just before 1 a.m., it dawned on Dan that Lisa was supposed to be coming over, and he began to wonder if those screams were Lisa's. He ran back outside, alone, and he found Lisa's bike hidden in some nearby bushes, but no Lisa. He went back inside and called her house. He only got an answering machine. So he called 911. After police showed up, Dan decided to wake his parents. His father went outside with him to chat with the first responder. Then father and son went back inside the house and went to bed, leaving the police to search for Dan's missing girlfriend. At 1.20 a.m., police found her. She was lying behind hedges in the neighbor's yard, 30 feet from the Dryford home. She had been stabbed 21 times with a knife-like object. Cuts to her head, neck, arms, legs, and torso. Her blue jeans and underwear had been pulled down. Her turtleneck had been pulled up over her bra. There were bruises on her neck. The coroner would determine she had not been raped. Dan was an obvious suspect. Later that morning, during questioning, police read him his rights, then asked if he could describe the screams he heard that night. 
It sounded like someone, a female, was being forced to do something that they didn't want to do, he said. He said the screaming lasted for about 15 seconds. Dan told police had forgotten Lisa was coming over to meet him that night. Other friends that were supposed to come over didn't either. Chris Jones told police he was doing schoolwork till midnight and decided not to go. I didn't find an account of what happened to the other friends. Later that day, as the media covered the murder of Lisa, Dan became very upset that reports revealed police were talking to him, making him look like a suspect. He and some friends sat down to make a potential suspect list of their own, and they came up with a name. The next day, two of Dan Dreifert's friends went to the Shaker Heights police office. Shane McGee and John George told a detective that they heard a threat against Lisa, and it wasn't from Dan. It came from Kevin Young, who had just graduated from Shaker Heights and knew Lisa and Dan because they had been in band together. Kevin had a crush on Lisa, they told police. Dan had recently told Kevin that Lisa had given her virginity to him. That made Kevin really mad. He lost it, they told police. He threatened to kill Dan and then threatened to kill Lisa. Police turned their focus away from Dan and onto this Kevin Young. Kevin Young was 18, a handsome young man, but one some people would later describe as a bit of an oddball. He was an incoming freshman at Ohio State University, but on September 13, he hadn't gone to the campus yet. He was still in Shaker Heights. Like Dan, Kevin had spent time in a hospital mental ward. In 1988, during a school band trip to Toronto, he threatened to jump off a hotel balcony because a girl refused to go out with him. He was hospitalized for depression and medicated. A year later, he asked to be removed from the medication because it was making him feel strange. In the days before Lisa's murder, Kevin had been obsessing about the fact that a friend was being deployed to the Middle East because Iraq had just invaded Kuwait. He was worried that the government was going to reinstitute the draft. Kevin also spent a lot of time at Arabica and Shaker Square, mostly playing chess with anyone who would challenge him. It's like a coffee shop, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. He was very skilled at at chess. I mean, he could have been on his way to becoming a grandmaster. And he spent most of his day and evening there on September 13. He was there at 10 p.m. when one of his best friends, Tex Workman, stopped in. Tex also knew the Dryfords. He was dating Deb, Dan's sister. Kevin and Tex chatted for a bit, a time during which Tex mentioned he was going over to the Dryfords for one of Dan's robo-parties. Kevin understood he wasn't being invited. I need to insert here that I could not find an account of why Tex did not go to Dan's that night as planned, hmm. or why Dan was no longer expecting him while he was in his bedroom cleaning at 1 a.m. And it never, never shows up, huh? Yeah, I, I couldn't figure out what they what their explanation for that whole scenario was. Anyway, in the days that followed Lisa's murder, Dan Dreifert's friends continued to heap suspicion on Kevin Young. One girl told police that when she was talking to Kevin, Kevin kept correcting her on aspects of the investigation that hadn't even been made public yet. Another said she heard Kevin once say he was going to get Lisa and that he referred to Dan as unfinished business that he needed to take care of. Kevin Young denied all of this. He said he never had a conversation about Dan and Lisa with Shane McGee and John George. He said he never threatened Lisa to anyone. 
He said the night of Lisa's murder, he left Arabica after talking to Tex and was at home by 11.30. His parents vouched for him. His dad said they played video games together until after 1 a.m. And the day after Lisa's murder, he said he met with Tex again. The Tex was afraid he would be accused of the murder because Tex had left his knife at the Dryford home during a recent visit. Kevin said both he and Tex thought Dan had killed Lisa and that Dan's own sister, Deb, had expressed a concern that her brother had done the deed. Detectives didn't believe Kevin, and it certainly didn't help that when police searched the young house on September 16, they found drawings of a pentagram, a devil face, and a heart tattooed with a Christian cross, stabbed and dripping blood. Oh, this is during the satanic panic, you know? Yeah. This is something they... Yeah, that's that's not a thing you want police finding on right. you when they're already suspecting you. And on top of that, writings in Kevin Young's diary revealed him to be a fierce white nationalist, angry at, quote, blacks, Jews, Slavs, Latins, yellows, and Semites. Police also found some disturbing things about Dan. During his month at the clinic, he wrote letters to Lisa, some with rather odd comments. In one letter, he quoted lyrics from a song that went, I'm sorry now I killed you, for our love was something fine. Until they come to get me, I shall hold your hand in mine. In another note, he wrote, Someday I'll go too far and do something very bad, and you'll yell at me and be serious, and I won't be able to handle it. But you can't let me get away with murder. I look at you and I see what I've done to you. I'm a bad influence on people. And believe it or not, I think I've made Kevin Young worse than he already is. That last comment, no clue. He didn't elaborate on what that meant. Yeah, when we're young, we write down some crazy stuff. Yeah, well, and another note, by the way, Dan wrote, I want to poke your eyes out with my favorite pocket knife. So, I I don't know. Really? (laughs) Do you ever write these kinds of things to your girlfriends? No, but maybe he was writing a song for his band. Could be. Oh, but in spite of these odd letters, Kevin is the one who stayed on the top of the suspect list. In the week after Lisa's death, Kevin had settled into his dorm at Ohio State, and that's where he was on October 26 when a Shaker Heights detective came knocking. Sergeant Tom Gray came armed with some guidance from FBI profilers who helped him form a strategy aimed at getting Kevin to confess. Sergeant Gray started with the soft approach, then led Kevin into a discussion of hypothetical ideas on how Lisa might have been killed. Kevin said uh, he imagined Lisa was probably riding her bike when the killer grabbed her, that the killer hadn't planned the attack but just snapped when she got close. He said he thought the killer would probably never kill again, that he was probably really scared when Lisa died. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't have an opinion on if this guy has done it yet, but please, exercise your right to remain silent. Oh, yeah, good point, good point. You wonder, though, how much people are willing to say, hoping that it appears their honesty is working in their favor. Right, but that's usually how it backfires. In the end, it doesn't. But Sergeant Gray also asked questions of Kevin that only the killer could answer, and Kevin did not give him the right answers. And when he asked Kevin if there was a chance police would find Kevin's fingerprints on her jeans, Kevin volunteered his fingerprints. He also volunteered to take a lie detector test. 
And Craig didn't hesitate. At 2 a.m. in that hotel room, they strapped him in and asked him several questions. Some of the questions indicated minor deception. The next day, they did it again. The results were worse for Kevin, and they told him so. Kevin cried and insisted he didn't do it. He said he was scared and felt suicidal, that he wanted to be hospitalized. That night, he was admitted to Laurelwood Hospital and remained there for two months. Things were not going to get better for Kevin. Shaker Heights police decided to hold a press conference and publicly announce Kevin Young's name and that he was their top suspect, though they said they had no physical evidence connecting him to the crime. Now, I found where a few folks, including a few journalists, were really concerned about this press conference, questioning why would they make a public display of Kevin if they weren't prepared to arrest him. But in releasing Kevin's name, the public also learned that Kevin's father was a law partner of the mayor of Shaker Heights. And suddenly, the community started wondering if there was some kind of cover-up. The police felt even more pressure to make an arrest. It happened on November 24, 1992, two years after Lisa's death. Police said they had two patients from Laurelwood Hospital who said Kevin admitted he had killed Lisa while he was being treated there, and Kevin was charged with aggravated murder. As I said earlier, Kevin's trial was broadcast nationally on court TV beginning June 28, 1993. He had a great defense, whose strategy included implicating Dan Dreifert. What about those eerie letters to Lisa, the defense said? Why did Dan go back into the house and go to sleep when he knew police were searching his neighborhood for Lisa because of his concerned phone call? They got a police officer to testify that Dan had told him he never heard any screaming and that Dan had been caught in some lies, such as saying his parents knew Lisa was coming over when they didn't. The jury also heard Kevin's father describe playing video games with his son until 1.15 a.m. On July 21, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury found Kevin not guilty. Okay. Lisa Pruitt's family issued a statement. Nearly three years ago, our daughter Lisa was brutally murdered by an enraged attacker. We have waited painfully and silently for the legal process to proceed to a conclusion. With the verdict returned today, it is clear to us that no one will be called to account for Lisa's murder. Oh, the poor family. Yeah, it's horrible. Even with the trial over, Kevin Young had no chance at a normal life. The pressure led him to climb a bridge over Interstate 271 and threatened to jump. He was talked down. Oh, good. Yeah. Kevin gave an interview many years later. He was still in Shaker Heights. He'd found a job working as a painter and just doing some odd jobs referred by old friends. He had trouble getting a girlfriend. Women would Google his name, find the old stories, and cancel second dates. In 2002, Young had another run-in with the law when he was charged with menacing, accused of acting strangely and bothering teenage girls in an RTA rapid station. That case was transferred to Lakewood Municipal Court after it was determined that Young would not get a fair trial in Shaker Heights. The charge was reduced to disorderly conduct, and he was sentenced to 30 days in jail. In 2017, Kevin Young died at the age of 44. 
He was found in his east side apartment. I could not find any publicized report on the cause of death. Huh. By the way, police have never found the weapon used in the slaying. Sounds like a good time to bring on board today's armchair detective. Well, with us tonight is Kelly Crawford-Smith. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Paula. Hey, lots of folks in Summit County are going to know that name. Kelly uh, has served on Akron City Council. She was the 10th Ward representative. She currently works for the administration of the city of Cuyahoga Falls. She's married to an Akron police sergeant, so you've probably learned a lot from him by osmosis. Yes. Uh, He's the worst. We watch a lot of true crime shows. He's terrible to watch those shows with because he always knows. He He, like always knows who did it. You're like, you know, three minutes into it, and he's like, yeah, the boyfriend did it. And right. then you have to sit there with, like, no surprises. Spoiler! Spoiler alert. Spoiler! And I'm going to wager uh, Kelly's going to say one of her most important jobs is being mom to an incorrigible five-year-old. My little man. Your little man. Well, Kelly, thanks for being with us here. This hep- episode is a real head-turner. Um, Kevin Young is gone. So if there are any new answers to be learned in this case, they aren't going to come from him. What? Let's just start taking this case apart. What do you find really significant uh, in this case that you want to talk about? The most significant aspect of this case to me is the razor focus on Kevin Young. I feel like throughout this entire case, there are, there are just these little tiny these tiny tinglers that happen throughout the case as you're reading through and inconsistencies with Dan Dreifert or his friends or just certain things that come through and you wonder how in the world did this happen? How in the world did the police not look at this thing? Um, one of the things that really stuck out to me was the friends. Yeah. Uh, the day after Lisa Pruitt is found murdered, the friends have some time to kind of powwow and talk about what happened here. Dan Dreifert's name had started to come out into the media. His name was coming out in this investigation, and I, I wholly believe that made all of them nervous. And it really got to me because it made me very reminiscent of Donna Tartt's book, The Secret History, or the current TV show, How to Get Away with Murder, where these young people really dig in and change the narrative of what's going on and change the trajectory of these investigations. I wholly feel that this is what happened with this case. I can't disagree. I, you know, when you stop and think about what did they have against Kevin Young, and it was the testimony of these friends who had gotten together, were influenced by how much Dan was upset by being, having the focus on him. And then what they had to tell police, they have nothing else on Kevin, absolutely nothing else. Right. And no one will deny Kevin throughout this entire thing. Kevin's the oddball in the community. And he'd been to Laurelwood. The police had found these writings, these racist writings that had been in his home. And... And that was the focus. That was kind of where they started to to drill in, I feel, on Kevin Young. But I feel like what they negated to pay attention to was that Dan Dreifert also had some really cryptic writings, and he had physically sent them to Lisa Pruitt. So though... Uh, Kevin Young had had these on more of a broad-based, um, a broad-based area where he's just kind of again he's the oddball. He's the um, uh, I think Steve wouldn't he was calling it what did you call it the um, 
the the satanic panic, right? Is it? Oh yeah. When they have the satanic panic, and and Kevin's kind of feeding right into that. But Dan was sending these physically and directly to Lisa Pruitt, and the fact that that was not looked at still blows my mind. What about what? Dan and his father reported in terms of their actions the night of that screaming. Did any of that sit wrong with you? Well, it did from the very beginning because initially the dad says that he heard some screaming. Later on, just as you reported, he says that he didn't hear any screaming. So that was something that really kind of got me in the gut there. And the fact that Dan goes back to bed. So he calls 911, right? He calls police out into his, his onto his property because there's this girlfriend that's missing. He finds her bicycle outside of his home, but she's not there. Even if you thought somebody was missing on your property that you didn't no, I feel like you would be terrified. There would be some sort of reaction and that reaction wouldn't be, okay, well, you guys handle this. I'm going to head on back to bed now and just let me know how it all turns out in the morning. That didn't sit well with me. And I don't even know what that means because if he had done something like that, he would have been covered in blood. And how do you get cleaned up from that and your father not see it? Right. And yet... It's not like he, it was like, oh, he probably thought he was overreacting, so he went back to bed. He found her bike. Right. Her bike was laying in the bushes. And then later finds her body, right? Like, later sees his dead girlfriend stabbed to death and then goes back to bed. I don't understand how any of this, I don't understand how your conscience, your conscience or your love of your friend or your love of your girlfriend, how do you just leave that there? And go back to bed. Keep wondering if maybe he was trying to hide something that wasn't related to the murder. Like maybe, you know, maybe he had his own personal robo party or, you know, maybe he was just trying to hide something else so his answers weren't making any sense. But to your point about the robo party, where were his friends? None of them showed up. I wish I could have found out more. I, I just had the one from his one friend saying, well, I was doing homework, so I decided not to go. But he was supposed to have a handful of friends there. Right. None of them Right. Where was Tex? Where's Tex? Where's Tex? Because the only time we hear about Tex again is in some of the research it will say Tex, who was at the time dating, um, he was dating Dan's sister, Debbie. Later, there was a phone call between the two of them. Who calls who? We know what time it happens. But in relation to the time of the murder, how long does it take, how long would it take Tex to get from the Dreyford house to his own home to call Debbie and establish an alibi. I'm not saying that's what happened, but what if that's what happened? No one looked into this. Yeah, I didn't say that in the story, so let me clarify to our readers. Tex testified and and records showed uh, that he was on the phone to Deb at 1.19 a.m. So if... If Lisa had been killed around 1220 to 1230 and Tex could show that he was on his phone, uh, back then he, there weren't cell phones, so he would have had to been home. So he was on his home phone to her at 119. There's about a 50-minute period there that he can't account for. So not saying that he had anything to do with it, but it just goes to show there are a lot of other people here that had some opportunities. You know, he did mention that he had a knife that he had left it at the Dryford home, but maybe, you know, what if he had left it in the middle of committing a crime? You know, I, 
I, it just goes to show there are a lot of other theories that maybe the police had just blown off because they were so laser-focused on Kevin. Right. And there were inconsistencies throughout this that weren't looked at. However, when there were inconsistencies with Kevin Young's statements, they were just ignored. So he says during his um, time with the psychologist and when he's being investigated, when they ask him essentially, how would this murder have happened? He says, well, this murder would have happened from the front, that somebody would have attacked Lisa Pruitt from the front. That's not what happened. Lisa Pruitt was attacked from behind. So there's an inconsistency there that's given to them by Kevin Young, and no one pays attention to it. They just move forward with the investigation against Kevin Young and essentially try to get him to confess to a murder that at this point, when he's given those statements, he didn't commit. Yeah. I. You know... It bothers me that years later, Kevin was arrested for menacing of some girls. Um, What do you make of that? I mean, part of me wants to say, you know, until that happens, ah, they got the wrong guy. And then the guy goes out and does something aggressive to girls later in his life and actually has to serve time for it. I don't know. Does that change your mind at all? It doesn't necessarily change my mind, but it most certainly casts a different shadow on Kevin Young. But to be fair, that shadow had been cast on Kevin Young the day after this murder happened. And it got worse. So you said during, when you're telling the story of what happened, you said that 10 hours later, this jury comes back with a a not guilty verdict. Kevin Young is acquitted and he's to move on with his life. But that's not how that worked because the next day in the plane dealer, the plane dealer tells the story of, but if the jury would have known more, they would have convicted Kevin Young. So once again, it puts doubt in the minds of all of the people in the community because they're essentially saying, yes, he's been acquitted, but let's be abundantly clear here. He's still likely the one who did this murder. So Kevin Young lived with that throughout his life. So though later on when he's arrested, you have to wonder, was there some sort of trauma on Kevin Young? Which there would have to be. Let's just say Kevin did not commit this murder. And you have the trauma of an entire community, an entire investigation that's been right at your back your entire life. I have to assume that bad things would happen. And he's already he already has a history of mental health issues. That couldn't have helped what was already actively there. I think it's I think it's fair to say though, and I think you and I agree, whether Kevin was guilty or not, the jurors got it right because there was no evidence against him. Correct. And if you're looking at physical evidence, and quite frankly, we don't know what that physical evidence is, even still almost 30 years later. So if you can dig into the physical evidence and see what's there, does that change the minds of anyone? And moving even beyond that, I wonder even now, again, 30 years later after this happened, if investigators reopened this case and went back to Dan's friends and asked them the same questions that they were asked back then, would their answers be the same? And I ask that because... 30 years is a very long time to grow up and to have your own families and to evolve as people. So would the loyalty that they had to Dan Dreifert back 30 years ago still live within them today, specifically if they have children? So if you have a daughter and you can see Lisa Pruitt in your daughter and you knew there were extra 
actions that had happened or, you know, things that had taken place that perhaps you weren't honest about at the time, would that honesty, would you be that honest now? Would you tell the truth now? And I'm not saying they were lying. I'm just saying, what if? Again, going back to the secret history, going back to how to get away with murder. If this narrative was created around Dan Dreifert from the words of his friends to set him free, would they still be so willing to tell those same stories today if it were not accurate? The one thing we haven't discussed as a possibility is a random stranger out on the street. Lisa comes by on her bike, and he decides he's going to attack her. I know most people who get killed, great majority of people get killed, get killed by somebody that they know. Is there any possibility that this case is completely wrong, that it was somebody who didn't know her? Right. And again, to the earlier point, unless any of us know what that physical evidence is or, you know, with new technology, now more than ever, there's a great opportunity for investigators to reopen and start really digging into this evidence and see if there is any physical evidence, if there's anything that points in any different direction but the razor focus on Kevin Young, that's when we would know for sure. If it was some random stranger coming down the street who saw her on her bike and took her away right from there. I couldn't find any indication that there was DNA evidence in this. I I just didn't come across a mention of that. I mean, I didn't read every story on it. But, you know, you hear all the time in stabbing cases that the stabber frequently cuts themselves in the act. And it just makes me wonder if there would... I mean, if you're stabbing someone 21 times... You've got to be leaving DNA evidence somewhere. Well, and even think? beyond that, let's not let's take it to a smaller scale than even that. Her shirt was raised above her bra. Who touched her? Who touched her clothes? Because if it is an act that is unplanned or it is an act that happens spur of the moment, I would assume that somebody wouldn't put gloves on right before they touch her clothes to pull her clothes above her bra. That's something I would like to know as well. One of the other things that I thought was kind of interesting was that once Kevin Young, once his name became known to the community, the community kind of pounced on the fact that his dad was a well-known attorney in the area. But if you're looking at the demographics, who is Dan Dreifert's dad? I would always want to, I kind of wonder who that is and what sort of influence he has. Because if we're talking about influence on politics or the kind of, um, you know, trajectory again of this investigation, and that was a concern, clearly Dan Dreifert's family had money as well. Their home is constantly referred to as a mansion. So just who was his dad and did he have any influence on this as well? I'd be really interested to know. It makes me wonder the relationship between the police and the mayor because it certainly didn't work in Kevin's favor that his dad was a friend of the mayor's because all it did was add more pressure on the police to arrest him. There was more fuel to the fire once that information came out and it enraged the community. So what was the community's relationship to the mayor at that point? That's really interesting to think of. What did you think about the police announcing his name and saying, we think it's this guy, but we don't have any evidence? Having a press conference to do that, would that have disturbed you? I feel like that was irresponsible at best. And I come from a background from public relations. And so if I were the one who was consulting this police chief at that time or whomever comes out with the information that pinpoints 
this is Kevin Young. He's the one who we're looking at. Though we have no clear evidence, honestly, that was the moment where the entire community changed their opinion of Kevin and started looking at Kevin as the person who hurt someone that lived in their community. That that feeling of safety was gone that minute with Kevin Young in the community. And you put that responsibility on the police chief, where again, whomever did the press conference that said this was Kevin. And then again, going back to after the jury acquitted Kevin Young of this murder, the next day, the plain dealer says, yes, but wait, even though he was, he was acquitted of this murder, if the jury would have known more, they would have made a different decision. Yeah, he wasn't going to win, even even in being found not guilty. I, I'm sure the police aren't even investigating this case anymore. I'm sure they're confident they thought they had the right guy. I'm sure. And but again, I just, you know, there's that little tingle that just says to you, 30 years later, what if? What if you would re-interview the friends? What would they say and would that change? Right. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. I'm so excited to be your armchair detective of the of the week. This has been really fun, and I'm really glad you had me on. This has been this has been good. That's it for tonight, campers. If you visit our website, OhioMysteries.com, you'll find photos, news clippings, links, and more on this and every episode. Now, a little bit more about our featured musical artist. Tonight, we're happy to introduce you to Samantha Fair, who is writing her songs under the stage name Unfair. She's a Garrettsville native living in Chardon, and you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram. Sammy has been sharing her new song on social media, and that was a big step for this young artist. She wrote to us, I take a lot of inspiration from indie and pop punk bands such as Mom Jeans and Modern Baseball. I started writing music as a therapy tactic and recently got over the anxiety to post it with the help of my lovely friends, Paige, Nathan, and Tia. So thank you, Paige, Nathan, and Tia, for encouraging Sammy, or we wouldn't have the opportunity to share her lovely song with our listeners. We've added Sammy's new song to our list of featured music on our website, ohiomysteries.com. But you don't have to go anywhere just yet. Here's the full version of the song, Escape, by Unfair. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio mystery. Sometimes I catch you crying And you feel like no one's watching
Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. 